Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 33. NASA is exploring the solar system and beyond to better understand our place in the universe. And we're looking to answer age-old questions like, how did our universe begin and how did galaxies, stars, and planets evolve? Our guest, Kimberly Enico, has been studying those very questions at NASA while merging science and engineering. We discuss her previous work looking at Pluto on the New Horizons mission, and we also go into her current role as the project scientist for SOFIA, the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. Here is Kimberly Enico. We was like starting it off, getting to know people a little bit. So I would love to hear about like, how did you join NASA? And like, how did you end up in Silicon Valley of all places? Oh, okay. Well, it was a bit of luck okay. and timing, but actually it was kind of hard work too. Uh, Isn't it always both in life? Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of luck, a little bit of hard work. <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, how I got my job at NASA, it, you know, it was a combination of just being in the right place at the right time and just doing my job. I was a postdoc, so okay. the position you, you take once you get your PhD. Okay. I was in Tucson, Arizona, uh, Stewart Observatory, and I was just doing my job. I was working on a uh, instrument that would fly in space someday. It was the multi-band imaging photometer for Spitzer. Okay. Is, uh, uh, Spitzer would eventually launch in 2003, but this was years before that. Mm -hmm. And we were building the instrument at the University of Arizona. And so I was working on that, just carrying out tasks. Yeah. And I was also involved in designing um, what we might have the successor to Hubble look like. Um, oh, we called cool. it the Next Generation Space Telescope, okay. uh, which now has been rebranded James <laughs> Webb. Okay. Uh, so I was working on the earlier re reincarnation of, of, of Next Gen, and I, I liked Next Gen Telescope because I was a, I'm a Star Trek fan, and I, <laughs> our symbol for the mission was the... Uh, the Star Trek communicator pin because nice. it was all next gen. Anyway, so I was working on a design study for that, and uh, we, as doing a design study, you go through reviews. Yeah. And uh, at the review, there were some NASA folks there, of course, because they're reviewing what the University <laughs> yes, of Arizona exactly. is doing. And, and there would be these comments about, well, who created that? Who did that study? Who did this? And oh, they said, oh, Kim did that. Kim did that. Oh, who's this Kim? <laughs> we have to meet her. We have to meet this person. <laughs> so I got to meet who would then become my first boss at NASA. Oh, In fun. a sense, he, he basically says, uh, you're a self-starter. You seem to be working on a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of great ideas. Um, how would you like to work for NASA? Oh, that's awesome. And what was, uh, you know, a little awkward at the time is that the my postdoc was ending. <laughs> okay. And I'm like, hmm, I'm looking for a job. And, um, yes. of course, my uh, postdoc supervisor was saying, oh, we could extend you another six months or a year. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, hmm. NASA's offering me a job. So you're like, <laughs> and then, oh, of course, great. history was made. So actually, it was um, just be me doing my work, um, mm -hmm. building instruments, um, you know, playing with new concepts for new space telescopes. And... Um, it led, landed me a job in NASA. Yeah. So, like, were you always, like, STEM-focused, wanted to build telescopes as, like, a kid looking up into the sky? Or how did that kind of come about? Well, not really. In fact, even the term STEM is actually quite new. Yeah. I mean, although I, I think I, I was at a STEM conference at Princeton last weekend mm -hmm. um, talking to educators, and I was curious, like, where did this whole thing STEM come <laughs> along? Because it's just, you know. But I, I learned how it, it's sort of an initiative to get us um, – 
you know, An realizing well, realizing that this country faces uh, a shortage in scientists and engineers and technically minded yeah. folks um, going forward. And so, um, I'm, I'm pleased that it's getting the attention that it deserves. Yeah. Um, at the same time, all other subjects are are equally important. But I, I digress. Yes. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I was just. Um, uh, a self-motivated student, curious about anything, wanting to learn. I wasn't the type of person who took things apart and yeah. you know played with it. I do that from time to time. I tinker now more yeah. as an adult than I did as a kid. Okay. As a child, I was more book smart. Uh, okay. And I was just more into learning, um, reading about things and um, trying to understand how that works rather than um, becoming an engineer. But I wound founding myself on a series of misadventures in um, engineering. It's been a lot of fun. When you joined into NASA, what, what was some of the early work? What are some things where we can like, you may know me by? <laughs> well, um, one of my tasks was I, I got, um, I was playing in our detector lab. So, okay. um, uh, and I was basically told, please see when our detectors fail. Okay. So it was pay to destroy things. Oh, how nice! So That's I fun. would take. We would. Um, so um, these infrared detectors would eventually fly in space again for the James Webb Space Telescope. This is early in the development. We were okay. trying to figure out what was the most robust to survive in the space radiation environment. So we would bring our devices up to UC Davis, their okay. particle accelerator, their cyclotron and bombard the heck out of them with high-speed protons traveling at the speed of light. Okay. And we would evaluate at what point the devices would start to no longer be operable or no longer be scientifically value, uh, uh, viable. Okay, it's kind of pushing the boundaries of what can this do. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it would lead to interesting uh, redesigns of the okay. actual devices themselves to make sure the band gap energies were more robust, the separation between the FETs and the multiplexers um, had were more space radiation hardened mm -hmm. um, because the whole point is you're going to fly these wonderful detectors to take these beautiful pictures of the deep universe but if they can't survive a few years in space due to radiation yeah. what's what's the point yeah and so um, that was a really fun um, project so it's one of my early projects working at nasa and i know now you're working on sophia but you'd also done some previous work on new horizons i think Yes, Before I did. I, yeah, talk so, a about um, that. Yeah, so um, in January of this year, I started um, as the project scientist for SOFIA, the Stratospheric mm -hmm. Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. But prior to that, yeah. <laughs> the last six years of, of my series of misadventures in the space agency, <laughs> uh, was a deputy project scientist on New Horizons, the it, Pluto flyby mission. Exactly. Awesome. <laughs> so I was brought on w due to my self-starting nature and the fact that um, I speak science and engineering, <laughs> and my job was to oversee the calibration of the instrument payload. Okay. Um, it was already on its way to Pluto. Um, the payload was launched in 2006, and I joined the project in 2011. Mm -hmm. and and uh, the flyby was in 2015. So we had about four years to evaluate and prepare the instruments so they were ready to go. Because at that time in the program, to save on operations costs, but also wear and tear on the instruments, uh, yeah. a deep space probe went through long periods of hibernation. Yeah. So most of the year, the everything would be sleeping. Yeah. And we would wake up twice a year to do some instrument checkouts. And so my work was to ensure that we made the best use of those limited times 
to check out that the instruments were working well, looking at stars, yeah. looking at um, long stares at dark parches of the sky. Um, and I'd imagine there's a bit of anxiety of you've put this like expensive like instruments, you've put them into space, it survived a launch, it's on its way, it's been hibernating. You kind of a little bit of anxiety of like, oh, I hope this works when we turn it back on. Uh, yes, but, there was a little bit of that. Yeah. In fact, it was also um, fascinating working side by side with the scientists and engineers on the project who were still learning about the instruments okay. and the spacecraft as it flew through the solar system. Oh, wow. And, the, you know, the, the environment was changing, too. We had one incident, um, an episode, where our ultraviolet spectrometer didn't turn on. And we're like, ooh. Oh, no. But it turns out it was because the spacecraft had actually gotten to a much lower temperature. And huh. we needed to just update when we did a when you have a an anomaly you file mm-hmm. an anomaly report and then you do um uh, you try to ex- experiment with a ground based simulator what might have happened so the, the oh, emitter wow. didn't turn on turns out it just went to safe mode which is what it was designed to do and it was because the lookup table on board um, needed to have some more information on what to do at low temperatures oh really and so we figured that out we then. Uh, carefully went through a series of tests in which you then um, upload that new table and then you would verify that the instrument turned on and worked as well. And so just a few months later, we were able to solve that issue. Um, But that was because, oh, uh, we are now in a new realm. And then that allowed us to all take a step back and look at the spacecraft again and go, okay, what other new environments is the spacecraft behaving in or new parameters that we need to really do look at what how our instruments would behave. And so it was a wonderful lesson learned for the program as we kept on learning about how the instruments were behaving. And of course, um, the calibration exercises in these these years prior to the flyby were successful because we brought you those beautiful pictures. Yes, I was going to say. <laughs> I'd imagine that's got to be the, it's like the big crescendo. And then when you take the picture and you're like, you know it happened great, but now you're waiting for all that data to come back. Yeah. But I'd imagine just seeing those first images just got to blow your mind. Um, yeah, they were. They were just um, phenomenal and, and just met and exceeded any yeah. sort of expectations and was mystifying. I mean, we, on approach to Pluto, I mean, yeah. the spacecraft's traveling 36,000 miles per hour, covering um, a million kilometers a day. Pluto started to come into focus and Sharon, and you got a glimpse of what you might see, but not when the high-res images came down. That was just phenomenal. And in, in an interesting yeah. connection between Sophia, you know, it's a plane with a hole in the side for a telescope. Um, you know, between Sophia, what you're working on now, and then also New Horizons, I understand that, like, I believe the Sophia like actually took some observations of Pluto even before New Horizons got there. Yeah, it was a, a yeah. wonderful timing coincidence. Um, Pluto is has has been and now will have returned to being an astronomical object. Yes, that distant point in the sky, that distant point of light. Yeah. Uh, it moves with respect to the fixed stars, which are very very much mm-hmm. you know. Much further away, and from our perspective, they say they're fixed, and Pluto moves with respect to that. There was a timing two weeks prior to the Pluto flyby, uh, Mm -hmm. June 29th of 2015, uh, Pluto was going to pass in front of a very bright star. It's called an occultation. We're basically looking at the shadow of Pluto, I'm sorry, Pluto uh, passing from the star, the star's light would dip, um, and then reemerge as Pluto you know, moved away from the star. Yeah. So you would have this light curve sort of, um, and then from using that information, you can study about 
the size of the object and and potentially its atmosphere. We knew, and in fact, Pluto's has an atmosphere and had been detected by wow. this exact same technique back in the 1980s. This occultation measurement. Yeah. So um, bodies in our solar system do uh, pass in front of the background stars, and they're called occultations. So uh, two weeks prior to the July 15th, uh, July um, 14th um, flyby in 2015. We had an occultation, and Sophia played a critical role in it. Is a mobile observatory. It's an airplane, so it's a mm-hmm. Hubble-sized telescope, two and a half meter, yeah. um, in the belly of a 747 aircraft. <laughs> this hole inside the plane, but being a plane, it can fly um, where you wanted to go. Where you wanted to go. <laughs> and in late June, June 29th, 2015. Pluto's shadow would um, fall on the Earth in the South Pacific um, near Australia, New Zealand. And oh, wow. um, so Sophia was mobilized to move like, there <laughs> and then fly um, over the ocean and chase the shadow of oh, Pluto. Because wow. the occultation is happening, but the shadow was also moving on the Earth. And what's a challenging observation, but the fact you can actually position your telescope to be in the exact place on the Earth's surface or in the Earth's skies. Yeah. Um, at a particular time, allowed you to allowed the observatory to fly through the center of the projected um, shadow. Okay. This maximizes the effect of, of the measurement to get the atmosphere. Um, it's sort of a lensing effect as the star goes through the planet's atmosphere, through Pluto's atmosphere, and creates a um, increase in signal, which is known as a central flash. And oh, wow. Sophia detected that. And along with some other ground-based observatories nearby, but Sophia flew through the center. Measured also Pluto's atmosphere in red, blue, and the near-infrared. Okay. And from that, you can work out um, uh, properties of the atmosphere. And this was very... um, uh, an interesting measurement because this type of technique has been used for decades to, to measure changes in Pluto's atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And Pluto's atmosphere had doubled between the 1990s and the early 2000s. Oh, really? It's because Pluto is coming out of its winter. Oh, that's it's right. It's a seasonal effect. And, the, and their seasons are much longer than ours because <laughs> considering yeah, Pluto, the orbit. Uh, uh, its trip around the sun is about 248 Earth years. Oh, wow. Okay. It was discovered in 1930. It actually hasn't made in a complete orbit around the sun since its discovery. Oh, wow. And um, so we don't really know the whole Pluto year of what's happening. But we do know that the atmosphere is changing. Well, and it's interesting you talk about the occultations. It's like, that's not really a new concept. I mean, you think of like, you know, when it's the moon and us, we call it an eclipse. Yes. Um, But similarly, like Kepler, some of these other space telescopes that are looking for exoplanets for planets around other stars, it's like the transit method of when those planets pass in front of them. It's just an interesting twist on it where it's like it's our solar system's planets, but then using other stars That's right. as, the, as that backdrop. So And the stars are that the flashlight, the, the light source yeah. that we measure. And because we measure light, uh-huh. and um, when the occultation occurs, we measure the change in the light, and we know it's because this body's passed in front of it. And so, for for that situation, did that end up? Is it just more information and more data to better understand, like 
Pluto, for example, or did that help then drive what you were doing on New Horizons of, oh, wow, now we know this stuff from Sophia. Let's look at our data in a different way. Or does that kind of change things at all? Or um, The timing was only two weeks before okay, the, the flyby. So. <laughs> so the flyby had been already been programmed, but okay. they had been uh, pre you know, when the flyby occurred, because the round trip uh, light time from Earth to Pluto at the time of the flyby was about um, nine and a half hours. Oh. So there wasn't going to be any Is sort of real time um, changes to the event. That's right, because Pluto's so far away. Yeah. By the time it happens and we see it, like that is light that we're seeing from like what nine hours away. So, so um, yeah, um, and so, but the uh. important thing it did actually provide is a calibration. Mm. It's sort of tying. I mean, the New Horizons flyby of Pluto, July of 2015, was one moment in space and one moment in time. We have this amazing snapshot of this world, this crazy world, um, at that moment in space and the moment in time. From now on, monitoring that that world until we send another probe there will be through these occultations. Wow. So this allowed a nice calibration between the, the information we can get by the light curves to what we can tie down to ground truth yeah. from the measurements of the constituents uh, of the atmosphere. Um, and as we follow future Pluto occultations, we could be able to monitor Pluto's atmosphere at the global scale. So then stepping away a little bit from Pluto, but just looking at Sophia and the work that you're doing now, are there any other occultations or any work on Sophia that you guys are hoping to take advantage of? So occultations <laughs> occur, you know, how they work is you have to you're identifying a, an object in our solar system moving with respect to a bright star there are many of these objects we can look at the yeah. moons of um, the giant planets um, more of these Kuiper belt objects but in october of this year okay. um, triton neptune's largest moon will okay. occult a star and oh, sophia wow. is going to fly to the east coast of the of the u.s down in florida because okay. the shadow path of triton um, will fly over the south atlantic Oh, nice. So we're going to do again this um, exact type of experiment. And the, um, the interesting thing about um, Triton is um, its atmosphere hasn't been measured in a very long time, mm -hmm. mainly because where Triton is with respect to the background fixed stars is moved to a part in our galaxy where the stars are not as bright, uh, or, bright or as numerous or the, the coincidence okay. of this happening. So this has been a long time coming. In fact, the last time a good measurement of Triton's atmosphere was made in 2001. So it's, a, it's, a, it's still about a decade and a half later. Yeah. Um, what's fascinating about it is um, we want to look at the story of whether Triton itself is undergoing seasonal changes, just like I talked about with Pluto. Okay. Um, it had its flyby in 1989 when Voyager 2 flew oh, by Neptune okay. and Triton. And the Voyager 2 data in 1989, August of 1989, revealed that Triton's atmosphere had hazes, okay. and it had winds, and it used it by the high, the imagery that showed these streaks on the surface, and of course it had measured the constituents of a very nitrogen-rich um, atmosphere, very similar to Pluto. Mm -hmm. um, but again, that was a, a moment in space and time, and subsequent measurements in 2001 would indicate that the pressure went up, so oh. the atmosphere was changing. So this occultation in 2017 in October will monitor Triton's atmosphere and see if it's changing again. Because again, it's perpetually going through seasonal cycles. Around that time next fall, we'll have to have you come on back so we can talk about the results from that. Exactly. Yeah. Do you guys mainly focus on the planets and the occultations 
Now, or, or do you have other works of like other galaxies, maybe, or other oh yeah, objects? I mean, occultations is um, only one aspect of a flying observatory, and it's okay. actually not the main emphasis of Sophia. Yeah, Sophia, in its name, is the stratospheric observatory for infrared astronomy. Yes, um, its bread and butter is looking at the universe in the infrared wavelengths, the yeah. wavelengths that are longer than um, what our eyes can see, mm -hmm. the thermal infrared, the longer wavelengths, and we do that by flying um, up into the stratosphere above forty thousand feet to get above 99% of the Earth's atmosphere, which uh, is uh, water, yeah, the water content, which absorbs a great deal in the infrared. Yeah, it distorts By, a lot of the stuff that you can see. And flying that high, because um, uh, to do infrared astronomy, uh, you would normally also f put a, a telescope in space, like mm -hmm. Spitzer, which is what I was working yeah. on as a postdoc, it was many years ago. Even James Webb coming um, up. And James of... Webb, James Webb's is an infrared observatory as well. It doesn't go as long wavelengths as Sophia. Okay. Sophia does, is actually probing um, um, a lot more of the uh, thermal emission of our okay. of our galaxy and also the thermal mission of other galaxies, too. So um, uh, the program, uh, Sophia is a general user observatory. We have lots of different topics. A lot of, lot of the, the user's observatory are looking, for, uh, looking at star formation regions in our own Milky Way, and also um, tying that into um, what we can see in other galaxies. So we just recently oh, okay. completed a multi-flight um, multi series looking at the Whirlpool Galaxy, M51. Okay. And M51 is about 31 million light years away. So it's not our galaxy, it's a very, very far away yeah. galaxy. But with two particular instruments, we were interested in um, understanding where the gas in that galaxy goes from the atomic to the molecular state. And when it goes to the molecular state, it then would then, um, physics would dictate it would collapse. Yeah. And this would be the beginning of star formation. Okay. So using this Whirlpool galaxy as a laboratory testbed to study the evolution or the migration mm -hmm. of gas. There's two instruments aboard Sophia that have a uh, resolving power. They, they spread the light out um, such that we can actually measure the speed of the gas, whether oh, wow. it's flying towards you or away from you, okay. in order to see, you know, where is this uh, transition happening from the atomic to the molecular. Oh, wow. Um, so this has um, been a, a big project, but um, it will give an insight. And then why understanding the uh, motion of gas and the um, amount of gas in not only the spiral arms, but also in the intra-arm regions, mm -hmm. uh, we can get some insights into um, um, how stars are forming in that galaxy, but also could be applicable to our own galaxy. Previously, we had people talking about Sophia, about the XC's instrument. And one of the cool things that I, I get a kick out of with Sophia is you can, since it's a plane, I mean, Hubble, you know, the space telescope is up there. We can't, it's not exactly easy to go up and change things out and fix things. But with it being an airborne observatory, when it lands, you can switch out instruments depending on what you're studying. For some of these different observations, are you literally like switching out the instrumentation in there? Yes, we are. And, and, and that's, that's the one of the amazing perks about an observatory that flies home every night. <laughs> yes. Um, you can switch out. I mean, Hubble, as you gave the example, did actually have four servicing missions. Yes, exactly. So um, you can service some of the space instruments at considerable 
um, effort. Yes, it's not exactly an easy thing. Whereas New Horizons never got service. That was on its way to Pluto. And then you just live with what you had. And same with Spitzer and and Kepler, which were in drift away orbits that you you wouldn't be able to service. Um, But yes, with Sophia, um, because we can touch the instruments, not only can we swap out the instruments, Mm -hmm. we can also upgrade the instruments with the latest technology. Oh, wow. Because in a space-based world, um, the instruments that we flew uh, flew on New Horizons for example, um, uh, they were already several years old by the time it launched. And by the time it got it to, to do its science, they were several decades old. Yeah. So um, with the, this Whirlpool galaxy in particular, um, there are two instruments that are used to take the data. But one in particular called the GREAT um, instrument, which allows you to tune to different types of molecular lines. It was tuning to this um, C+. It's an ionized carbon line at 158 microns. Uh, that was made by um, the latest and greatest in receiver technology. Oh, wow. And um, um, actually, you really using the state of the art. And this gave the observatory unprecedented sensitivity um, in fact, this instrument has the capability to map large regions um, of the sky at a speed much faster than its instrument predecessor, um, a concept on the Herschel Space Telescope. It was an ESA far-infrared um, space telescope that was launched several years ago, but mm-hmm. ran out of cryogen, so it's end of life. Okay. Um, the instrument that's similar to the instrument on Sophia had one detector, whereas the instrument on Sophia today has um, 14 detectors <laughs> and is being upgraded to more. Oh, wow. Um, due to the fact that we can actually touch the instrument and upgrade it. The capabilities of Sophia are getting better with time mm. due to the fact that you could swip, swap out instruments but also upgrade them. Oh, wow. And that's being practiced. As you've recently joined the Sophia team, um, talk a little about like what what is your job now with Sophia? I mean, obviously, it takes a whole team. You've got pilots, you got engineers, you have a whole mix of a team to make something like this work. Yeah, it surprises me every day as I walk into the office how how complex Sophia is, because yeah. it is three large projects. There's the airplane. <laughs> yes. There's this telescope that needs to stay steady when you're in turbulence mm-hmm. to make sure that you know the light stays on the pixel on your detector where you want. And then you also have the science instrument, for which you have a variety of instruments. And people. Yeah, it yeah. is a human-operated um, activity with your pilots, um, the mission flight planners, the mission directors, the telescope operators, the instrument operators, and also the scientists analyzing the data. Um, and not to say either, not to exclude that we have educators on board yes. who are part of um, a sister program. To um, they're called the airborne ambassadors who work with the scientists, and then they bring back knowledge that they learned about an airborne observatory back to their classrooms. I mean, a lot of people are involved in this project. And um, the human element of astronomy um, is quite enhanced. I mean, mm. uh, the field of astronomy, um, where you're doing your observing, you have a space-based telescope for which your data gets emailed to you, you know, <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, or in ground-based, as we go to larger and larger telescopes, um, they're often done with Q observing, which you don't go to the telescope anymore and observe. You just put in what you want yeah. after it's been reviewed, and um, it gets um, gets time on the sky, and your email and your data gets emailed to you. Oh, wow. um, whereas with Sophia, it you are making decisions as you you're there on the telescope observing, um, watching the data come in, 
and making adjustments as necessary because, for example, if you're um, interested in, in measuring water in your object, you have to understand the yeah. water of the background in the sky. And so you have different calibrations you can do to um, separate out the water contamination from the <laughs> earth. Okay. Um, so you can make sure that you have a good detection of water um, in the object of interest. Um, so that's um, a pretty uh, pretty neat experience to have that hands-on yeah. um, real time. Now, there is some flexibility when you're in the sky to change uh, where you're looking, but it's kind of limited yeah. because the telescope itself has a slightly um, smaller, you know, a range of angles it could look at. Okay. And so if you go to the Sophia Science website, you can look at the flight plans of each of the nights Sophia's flying, and you'll notice that the flight plans are always very different yeah. because of where the objects are in the sky and how long you want to spend on the, on the sky um, for that object. And so it is a complicated observatory in many ways but yeah. it's very unique yeah um so before we wrap up i would be remiss to not mention as somebody who grew up as a big fan of legos and building <laughs> things have to put you on the spot a little bit um evidently you are you you have now been immortalized in lego form talk a little bit about that um yeah and this so is how does this, that happen? Now, this is this is um separate from the uh, official lego in women which mm -hmm. just came out is also the product of this woman named maya weinstock mm -hmm. she um she's at mit and uh she's very active on social media and yeah. um over the years um when um you know, something's happening, not just in the world of STEM, but, you know, activity, she'll um, immortalize you in a Lego figure. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so uh, myself, <laughs> along with uh, other project scientists on New Horizons, Kathy Oka and Leslie uh, Young, and Alice Bowman, our mission ops manager, the four of us during awesome. the flyby, um, we were made it all to Lego figures. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and I remember, you know, being in... Um, in, in at the applied physics lab in Laurel, Maryland, um, when I was running around, you know, um, meeting with all the different scientists and and uh, my colleagues pulled me says, Kim, Kim, did you realize you've been made into a Lego figure? And I said, what? <laughs> I was just so funny. busy enjoying that. <laughs> but um, but she's also immortalized. So it was a very touching moment. And she nice. sent me my Lego figure, oh, uh, which has been lovely. It's on my desk. But uh, the um, the official uh, Women yes. of NASA Lego uh, collection is amazing. It features Katherine Johnson, mm -hmm. um, who was uh, calculated the trajectories for Mercury and Apollo. And, of course, she's been um, immortalized with hidden figures. Figures. Exactly. Uh, Margaret Hamilton, who is also a computer scientist doing a lot of um, uh, computations for the Apollo missions as well. Mae Jemison, first African-American yeah. um, astronaut in space. Uh, Nancy Grace Roman, who's okay. the, the mother of Hubble. She's the one who... Um, led towards we need to have a space telescope because before Hubble um, yeah. we didn't actually think about could we have telescopes, telescopes. in space and of course um, the late Sally Ride uh, oh. role model for me you know uh, the first American astronaut in space yeah. so that NASA women's um, collection is is of course women of NASA and, and there are so many other women's of NASA my little Lego contribution is unofficial but <laughs> it, it was very touching I was just doing my job yeah that's um, nice. I was just doing my job but um, it was quite quite fun I've seen Lego models of planes and Lego models of telescopes it's only a matter of time. There needs to be a Sophia Lego model, and we could put the little ones of you inside of it. <laughs> there we go. So
So for folks who want any more information, um, of course, on NASA.gov, on Twitter, we are at NASA Ames, but also at Sophia Telescope, and we're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So if you have any questions for Kimberly, go ahead and hit us up on Twitter, and we will loop back to her to get any of your responses. But I have a feeling that you're going to be coming back, so. Oh, okay. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> but anyways, thanks for coming on over. This has been fun. Thank you, Matt.